Welcome, welcome, welcome everyone to The Dark Parts, a show where we explore the darkest parts of history, the world, and your mind. I'm your host, Heath, and with me today, as always, is the lovely Queen of Scream, Daphne. Daphne, how are you doing? I'm good. While you were talking, I took a big sip of smoothie and I just gave myself a brain freeze. I just took a big sip of a white claw. You did. I'm doing well, though. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Enjoying the rain? Uh, no, not so much. I actually hate it. <laughs> it's pouring. It's gonna. It's like flooding here in LA. Yeah, it's pretty Which weird. I haven't seen in years. Yeah, I'm waiting for some sunshine. It is making all the hills like really green and beautiful. Oh, but, it looks. It looks nice. But I'm over it. I'm from Oregon. I don't want that shit. It'll be gone next week. So, Daphne, you've spent some time in London. What did you find interesting about the city of London? Um, I mean everything. But I love. I just love the architecture, and I love um. Public transport there is so, so nice. A lot better than here. I mean, yeah, we don't have that, really. I mean, we don't have it in an accessible way like they do, where you can just hop on the tube and and see a bunch of beautiful shit. Yeah, absolutely. Any other things you want to mention about London while you were there? I do, but it's a spoiler. Oh, okay. The pubs. The pubs. Well, let's talk about it. London, the city with the most pubs in the world. With 8.9 million people calling London home, There's one pub for every 2,346 residents, and that's a lot of pints. In the 1800s, it was known as Dirty Old London, due to the 300,000 horses that produced 1,000 tons of dung a day. And that's not horseshit. It's totally true. It's also the city where the Whitechapel murderer better known as Jack the Ripper, murdered at least five women in the late 1880s with ghost-like precision and phantom swiftness. But long before Jack left his sadistic mark on the city, another ghost terrorized the people of West London, which led to attacks, hauntings, and even murder. So grab your petticoat and a cup of PG tips, because today we're going to discuss one of the most bizarre and complex ghost stories ever told in an episode that we call The Hammersmith Ghost. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. So where did all this madness go down? Tell us. Well, the location is in the name. Hammersmith and Fulham is a district of West London with a population today of around 45,000 people. But back in 1803, when our story takes place, there are just under 6,000 residents, so a lot less. It's home to the Guinness Book of Records, the smallest pub in the world, and was even frequented by legendary writer Ernest Hemingway. The district is located in Middlesex County and lies just north of the famous River Thames. Hammersmith is a quaint suburb that eventually became a metropolitan area of London, but before then, the most notable landmark in Hammersmith was the St. Paul Church that was built in 1625, followed by the Hammersmith Bridge years later. Now, in the winter of 1803, 
strange occurrences began to plague the people of Hammersmith and create a flurry of fear and paranoia that would lead to centuries of conflicts and debate. In November of 1803, reports began to flood in that a menacing apparition had been seen in Hammersmith, but not only this, it had been attacking men and women in the area. The ghost was described as being tall and dressed in a white cloak, with some even describing that it had a set of horrifying horns. God, so many creatures with horns. I know, what the hell? Citizens also believed that the ghost had possibly been wearing the skin of a slaughtered calf. One of the first reports that came in by a local servant named Thomas Groom described his near-deadly encounter with this ghost. He reported, quote, I was going through the churchyard between 8 and 9 o'clock with my jacket under my arm and my hands in my pocket when something came from behind a tombstone, which there are four square in the yard behind me and caught me fast by the throat with both hands and held me fast. My fellow servant, who was going on before me, heard me scuffling and asked what was the matter. Then, whatever it was gave me a twist around and I saw nothing. I gave a bit of a push out with my fist and then felt something soft like a great coat. Then, a few days later, just as the clock struck 1 a.m., a horse carriage carrying 16 passengers being pulled by eight horses was passing by the St. Paul Church when the horses were brought to a sudden and instant halt. That night, the fog heavily covered the crisp winter air, and the moonlight peeked through the clouds in an ominous silhouette. The driver of the carriage noticed the horses take a nervous step backward, and that's when he saw it. A tall, white ghost standing in the middle of the road, moving towards the carriage slowly. Back then, a lot of the roads were rural country dirt roads, so you can imagine the fear the driver felt when he witnessed the apparition in the middle of the dark night. Yeah, I would be scared shitless if all of a sudden on a dark, you know... No streetlights. Back road, yeah. No streetlights at all, and you just see a, 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 like a white ghost standing in front of you. But before the ghost could reach the driver, he jumped from his perch and began to sprint in the opposite direction towards town, leaving the 16 passengers abandoned, alone in the dark, and completely confused. When the driver finally reached town, he burst through the doors of a local inn in tears, proclaiming that he had seen a ghastly apparition that stalked he and his passengers. But this was no surprise to many locals who had already heard of this tall white ghost. Now the townspeople knew that the servant Thomas Groom's reports had not been an isolated incident. With panic taking hold of a shocked community, the mystery attacker became known as the Hammersmith Ghost. Could you imagine? I don't know why, but just thinking about ghosts or anything else that is paranormal back in like the 1800s, automatically makes it even scarier. Yeah, it's just got that, it's got those gothic vibes. It's got that tiny Tim shit to it, you know what I'm saying? (laughs) Very scary. Yeah, and you know, I mean, obviously, like, we're talking about the lack of electricity and all that stuff. It's like a ghost by candlelight is a lot scarier than a ghost by fluorescent light. That's what I'm saying, yeah, exactly. 
So after that night, the sightings only continued to rise as reports came in almost daily. Most of the time, citizens witnessed the ghosts near the St. Paul Church or the fields surrounding Black Lion Lane, but sometimes it would be seen prowling the local graveyards and even springing from behind tombstones to attack and scare locals. It's like a naughty teenager. Yeah, and this is exactly what happened to Thomas Groom. He was walking past the churchyard. Could you imagine you're going you're going by a, a graveyard and a ghost like jumps out from behind a tombstone to scare you? And no, I didn't even scare him. It, I mean, it attacked him. It grabbed him around the neck. Well, right. Okay, attacking. Yeah, that's even scary. Well. Yeah, yeah. Even, even <laughs> that's worse. what I'm saying. Yeah. So rumors began to circulate that the ghost was actually the spirit of a young man who had committed suicide the year prior by slitting his own throat. Oof. Yeah, so I don't know how the townspeople came to that conclusion, but they did. It was rumored that the town was cursed because they had buried the young man in the small graveyard behind the St. Paul Church. Now, it was believed at the time that burying a suicide victim on holy ground was a massive problem because locals were convinced that taking your own life would instantly disqualify uh, disqualify you sorry, from the gates of heaven. Therefore, your soul could never truly rest. And citizens knew that the apparition was malicious due to the previous attacks, but hysteria really set in when one woman died from her encounter with the Hammersmith ghost. An unnamed pregnant woman, I don't know why she wasn't named, but I couldn't find her name in any newspapers or reports, but she was walking home one December evening when the ghost, quote, wrapped its spectral arms around the poor woman, causing her to faint from terror. That's very sad. Yeah. An hour later, so this this poor woman was laying in the snow for an entire hour, but an hour later, a neighbor of the woman found her lying in the snow and transported her home. But sadly, a day later, the woman would die, apparently due to shock and fear. And the neighbor reported, quote, whereupon she took to her bed and never again rose. A few weeks after the malicious haunting began on December 29th, 1803, a night watchman named William Girdler had been patrolling an area known as Beaver Lane when he noticed the Hammersmith ghost peeping from behind a tombstone. God, that's just that's a scary image. God, it so is. Peeping ghost. William continued to investigate the matter when the ghost began to lunge toward him and then subsequently run off. But thankfully, William was armed with a pistol, so he gave chase ordering the entity to identify himself. I but, wonder if the ghost uh, had seen William's gun and was like, nope. Well, I mean, what the hell is that going to do? I mean, yeah, but at this point, they're really not sure if it is a ghost right. or if it's a person. Right. They're just not sure. Right. So, I mean, I do understand that, but if it, you know, as legend says, it is a ghost. So it's like, I don't know. But also, they probably didn't you gotta know. Sh- try. They probably didn't know shit about ghosts back then either. That's so true. They, they probably thought they could kill a ghost, a ghost with a gunshot. Well, William ran across the courtyard, close in pursuit, and noticed the ghost stumbling as if it had been tripping on its own cloak. But just as William had almost caught up with the spirit, it removed its cloak, tossing it to the ground, before leaping over a small wrought iron fence and fleeing into the night. 
When William came upon the discarded cloak, he picked it up and actually realized that it was nothing more than just like an average white tablecloth. So at this point, it was surmised that the Hammersmith ghost really wasn't a ghost at all, like Keith is saying, but that it was just a regular human, you know, who just kind of set out to terrorize an entire town. With this new information coming to light, William Girdler was able to recruit a slew of young men from the town willing to join his ranks as night watchmen. Now, apparently, catching a human prankster opposed to a devilish ghoul created this newfound confidence in Hammersmith, and the new volunteers spent each night thereafter just roaming the streets, hoping they would be able to catch this monster in the act. Yeah, I think it's so funny that now they're like, oh, it's not a ghost and probably a human. All right, we're good. Like, because before, like, nobody wanted to be out at night. Nobody well, wanted it's to the patrol. Unknown. Yeah, it's the unknown. But now that they're like, okay, it's a human, they're like, we are men. We're, we're a group men. Of men. We have this. We're coming after you. Yeah, exactly. But on January 3rd, 1804, one of those self proclaimed vigilantes would make a grave mistake. A 29-year-old customs officer named Francis Smith, who had volunteered his time to catching the ghostly predator, spent the first part of his night having pints in the local Black Lion Inn before mustering the courage to grab his pistol and hit the streets for some late-night justice. He hit the streets at 8 p.m. that night when he ran into William Girdler, who assured him that he would be back to his location in about an hour to give him the time. I guess no one really had watches, so they may have. this may have been how they were able to relieve one another from duty. Francis was walking the dirt trails of Black Lion Lane and inspecting fields and hedges, looking for something white to strike his eyes. See, Black Lion Lane was known for its tall hedges, situated on either side of the narrow lane, which made it incredibly difficult to see anything, and also created a pitch-black trail to walk. Also that night, it was extremely foggy, like the type of fog where you can, you know, you can't even hardly see your hand in front of your face. So it was making it really difficult for Francis to see. He heard William announce the time when 11 p.m. struck, and then it was silent for a few moments. But then, just after 11 p.m., Francis heard what he believed to be footsteps walking toward him from the opposite direction. Francis made his presence known by shouting, Who goes there? Followed by, Who are you? I'll shoot! That's when the ghostly figure closed in on his location, but didn't respond to his questioning. Francis described a tall, white figure just a few yards away when he raised his pistol and fired around in the direction of the entity. He noticed the figure drop to the ground, and for a moment, he reveled in his success. Like, he had done it. He was the hero of the evening and had slain the ghostly figure. But that excitement was short-lived, because when he approached what he believed to be the culprit behind the Hammersmith hauntings, he quickly realized that it wasn't a pile of ectoplasm that he had slain, or even the body of a malicious prankster in a white sheet but that of a regular citizen of Hammersmith, who he happened to recognize, a young man named Thomas Millwood. Francis Smith's one single bullet had struck Thomas directly in the lower left jaw, 
killing him almost instantly. And here's where things go terribly wrong. See, Thomas Millwood was a local bricklayer, and part of his uniform for his trade was white linen trousers, a white waistcoat of flannel, and a white apron that he wore around his waist. Thomas had been leaving his parents' house after a short visit on the night of January 3rd, and they happened to live on Black Lion Lane. Now, according to Thomas's sister, Ann Millwood, he had been warned not to wear his white attire out in public after dark as many reports stated that vigilantes were looking for a white-cloaked perpetrator. In fact, weeks prior to his death, Thomas was almost accosted one night for resembling the ghost in his work clothing. His mother later stated, quote, On Saturday evening, he and I were at home, for he lived with me. He said he had frightened two ladies and a gentleman who were coming along the terrace in a carriage, for that man said, he dared to say that there goes the ghost, that he said he was no more a ghost than he was, and asking him, using a bad word, did he want a punch of the head? That is the funniest line I think I've ever heard. Do you, do you want a punch of the head? Would you like a punch of the head? I begged him to change his dress. Thomas says I, as there is a piece of work about the ghost, and your clothes look white. Pray do put on your great coat that you may not run any danger. It's just crazy, though, that like this regular guy who's just wearing his uniform, not doing anything wrong, not trying to scare anybody, is scaring people just because he's wearing white clothes. Like, he's not doing anything else. He's just wearing white. Yeah, and I can't even imagine if you were a baker or something, you know, wearing, <laughs> like, all white chef, as well. Or a for chef. God's sakes. Or, yeah, I mean, it could have been anybody. So the first person to the scene was a wine merchant named John Locke who described Thomas's clothing as, quote, linen trousers entirely white, washed very clean, a waistcoat of flannel apparently new, very white, and an apron which he wore round him. His trousers came down almost to the edge of his socks. As Francis stood over Thomas's body, John Locke told him to go home and to wait to be called upon by authorities for a formal investigation. But Francis was in shock and refused to move from his location. Other townsfolk now descended upon the scene and others who showed up left to retrieve a constable to arrest Francis. John Locke and a few other locals lifted Thomas Millwood's body and carried it to the Black Lion Inn, which is the same place where Francis had been putting down a ton of beers earlier that evening. A physician was called to make a professional examination, but it was obvious that Thomas was deceased. The doctor determined that when the bullet entered Thomas's jaw, it exited out the back of his neck, which ultimately cut his spinal marrow and killed him. And Francis Smith's trial began on January 11, 1804, which is very soon. Yeah, it was very quick. So, a jury of Francis's peers gathered at a place called the Old Bailey with the task of deciding his fate. 
Francis was standing trial for first-degree murder, but the question was posed, could he really be responsible for the murder if he believed that his life was being threatened? And furthermore, if he felt like he was protecting his town from a ghost? Actually, I, honestly, I'm surprised that they put him on trial for this, just being in that era and knowing that people were out trying to find this ghost for the sake of the town. Like, I'm surprised it wasn't like, oh, it was a mistake. Like, they, the, the fact that they put him on trial is shocking to me. Yeah, and we're going to definitely go into all of that. Oh, yes. So Francis defended himself, saying that he had no intention of hurting anyone, and townsfolk who knew him testified that he was an honest and mild-mannered man who had no ill will towards Thomas Millwood. I mean, very sad that this young man was killed. Yeah, but, you know, originally they were thinking, well, you know, did he have it out for Thomas Millwood? And he's oh, using course, this, yeah. this ghost experience totally to, get it. Yeah, to cover it up. So the judge was not convinced, stating that Francis made a poor decision by getting drunk on ale before making his patrol with a loaded gun. And I got to say, that's fair. That's pretty fair. The judge stated, quote, in this case, there was a deliberate carrying of a loaded gun, which the prisoner concluded he was entitled to fire, but which he really was not. And he did fire it with a rashness, which the law does not excuse. Thomas's sister testified that while Smith did shout out twice, it was all within the span of just a few seconds max, and that her brother might not have been able to reply even if he wanted to before Francis the Ghost Slayer fired around. Because I guess after Thomas had left his parents' house, um, the sister had heard the whole commotion. So she heard Francis shout, and then she heard the shot. Right. So if found guilty of murder, Francis Smith would suffer the same fate as his innocent victim. So the death penalty, although it would be by hanging. But feeling sympathetic to Francis's situation, the jury decided that they would return a verdict of manslaughter instead of first degree murder. However, the judge was not having it and told the jurors to return to their chambers and stay there until they came back with a murder or innocent verdict. The judge told the jurors that manslaughter was simply not an option. So just after 5 p.m. on January 11th, 1804, the jury had finally come to a conclusion. Guilty of murder in the first degree. I can't believe that the judge basically told all these jurors, like, hey, no, manslaughter's not going to work. Manslaughter like, it's, makes more sense, though. He, yeah, he was basically saying he's either innocent or he's guilty of murder and there's no in-between at all. Right. Like, what kind of system is that? I, I don't know. Well, I mean, I don't think that would fly. That wouldn't fly I mean, I don't think I know that wouldn't fly today either. You yeah, know? it wouldn't. But, yeah. So Francis burst into tears before the judge and witnesses because within the week he would be hung. Fortunately, though, this would not be the end of Francis Smith's story because literally in the 11th hour, as Francis stood before the gallows, the court intervened and appealed his conviction where he received a stay of execution, at least for now, until the whole mess could be sorted out. Then a week later, after making an appeal to the highest court in the land, the crown, Francis received a letter of royal pardon, saving his life and reducing his sentence to one year in jail, accompanied with hard labor. I wonder what the hard labor was. It sounds bad. Yeah, 
picking up stones or something. <laughs> I don't know. But the story definitely doesn't end there. I mean, you thought this was over? Absolutely not. Many wondered if they would ever know the real identity of the Hammersmith ghost, who terrorized the town for months and indirectly led to the death of a young man. Well, after Francis Smith's trial concluded and the dust had finally settled, the real Hammersmith ghost came forward, and the reasoning behind his ghoulish deeds were pretty fucking silly. A local shoemaker named John Graham admitted that he was indeed the menacing ghost, but he said the reason why he had started the prank was because some apprentices of his had told his young children too many ghost stories that scared the shit out of them and kept them up all night. So basically, he's just a really pissed off dad at this point. I mean, you know, like his kids are up all night, they're scared because of ghosts. Why are you taking it out in the town? That's what I'm saying. So in a weird act of revenge, John Graham put on a white cloth and began to stalk his apprentices and spook them on their way home from the pub. Now, nobody really knows what happened after that, and John never really explained whether he had been behind all of the attacks or if someone else had turned his prank into a copycat haunting. Which is, you know, because it's not like not all of his victims were apprentices or, or victims of, of the Hammersmith ghost were his apprentices. But I mean, it had to have all made sense in the end, knowing, like we were talking about earlier, like how scary that a ghost would jump out from behind a tombstone. Like, that's not like a very ghostly thing to do. So it felt obvious that it was a person anyway. And I'm glad that they got their closure. But things are going to get so much crazier than this. Yeah. And apparently, I mean, these townsfolk thought it was a ghost in the beginning like originally they well, did of course they didn't know that it was a man they, they were literally under the suspicion that this was a real life ghost one thing that we do know though is that john graham never stood trial for his involvement in any of the town's mass hysteria which makes you really wonder because he allegedly scared a pregnant woman to death attacked and choked the servant thomas groom and he even caused a man to shoot and kill Thomas Millwood. So it's like, how can he not be held responsible for creating all of this horror and terror for about two months? Especially if he's admitting that he's the guy. Like, yeah, I don't know. I mean, he caused a lot more harm than Francis did. It seemed even though Francis did some horrible things, I'm not not saying that. I mean, Thomas should not have been killed. It was a, it was a very irresponsible move on his part. Yeah, definitely. And that makes you wonder about what, you know, some of the other townspeople were rumoring that maybe John Graham had been the initial person to be the ghost and then people kind of took it upon themselves to like take over or kind of copycat what he was doing. Right. And took it to like the next level. So, but we really don't know. It could have been John Graham the entire time. So over time, the case of the Hammersmith ghost would be called into question and would be speculated upon and debated for centuries. In the 1980s, the Hammersmith case would be referenced when a man witnessed what he believed to be an attack and tried to intervene. The man believed that he was trying to stop an assault from taking place, when in all actuality, the man he was trying to stop actually turned out to be the victim. He ended up assaulting a man who had been the victim of a theft and had been trying to fight off his attacker. This is when Francis Smith's case was referenced because the man used the argument that he truly thought the victim was the person committing the crime, you know, like Francis. 
But the judges agreed with his defense, and after considering the case, his conviction was eventually overturned. The jury should be directed, first of all, that the prosecution have the burden or duty of proving the unlawfulness of the defendant's actions. Secondly, if the defendant may have been laboring under a mistake as to the facts, he must be judged according to his mistaken view of the facts. Thirdly, that is so whether the mistake was, on an objective view, a reasonable mistake or not. So basically they're saying, if you didn't realize that you were committing a crime because you thought you were doing something good, um, that you shouldn't be held accountable for that. Exactly. So a legal researcher named Glanville Williams, who wrote the book titled Homicide and the Supernatural, argued that the defendant shouldn't be charged with murder if they genuinely thought that they were attacking a ghost. Since ghosts can't be physically harmed, the defendant cannot be expected to kill or harm the ghost. He stated further that ghosts are scary, which, quote, is itself sufficient to reduce a consequential killing from murder to manslaughter. In the case of the Hammersmith ghost, Williams suggests that the court should have considered Smith's state of mind. Based on the court records, William believes that Smith genuinely believed Thomas Millwood was a ghost, not a person, when he fired his gun. So what do you think about that? I mean, I agree, but I also disagree because they had banded together as a group of these vigilantes trying to find the man behind this because of that cloak that they found. Right. So he didn't go into it thinking this was a real ghost. It's possible in the moment that he was so scared that he thought, oh my God, this really is a ghost. But it also, a, a bullet isn't going to hurt a ghost. So you firing it, the only per, the only entity you're going to harm is a person. So you're either firing out of fear or you're firing to kill or harm a person, a living human being. Sure. Because it's not going to do shit to a spirit. So I think either he was really drunk and got scared and did that and shot by mistake thinking it was a spirit and it wasn't or you know what I mean? Like I, yeah. but I feel like he knew that in, in some capacity that it was a human. But, you know, it was a really foggy night. There's all these things. But going into it, he had to have known it was it was a human because that was what they all thought. Yeah, and exactly. You're right. I mean, at that point, they knew because William Girdler had found the cloak on the ground. Yes. And that's how they determined that it was it was probably a human. Exactly. So, I, I don't know. It's, it's kind of interesting to me because if the constables had uh, essentially, like, hired these night watchmen to patrol for them, that would kind of make a difference in my mind, I suppose. Right. But the fact, I, I don't know if these were just, you know, just a, a gang of young vigilantes who had no connection to the law whatsoever. It's like, should you have been out there? Probably not. And if you're going to take things upon yourself, you better be ready for those consequences. You I agree. I, mean? I agree with that fully. But I also think that uh, Francis is kind of a dumb fuck for getting drunk beforehand. Like, like that's probably not the time to get drunk right before you're going to go out, you know. Well, imagine all these guys anyway. Like, they're so excited. They're like, I'm doing something important for the town. I'm taking, you know, justice into my own hands. And I'm going to get this guy. Like... 
they have they think that they're invincible that they can do this because they're on the good side they're on the side of the town right they're on the side of the town that's gonna capture this right traitor but just like the judge said like that was not your place and you made a mistake and that was you shouldn't have done that right so so today over 200 years later the black lion inn is still standing and it's known as a landmark in the controversial slang of thomas millwood in fact there is even a plaque on the outside of the building near the entrance that says quote The Black Lion, formerly known as the Black Lion with a Y, a public house has stood on this site for well over 200 years. Originally a piggery, it is reputed that the pig farmer started brewing beer for himself and his friends. This proved so popular that it overtook his agricultural interests as his main occupation. The Hammersmith ghost started haunting Black Lion Lane and St. Paul's Churchyard in 1804. One night, an excise officer, Francis Smith, filled his blunderbuss with shot and himself with ale before killing an unfortunate white-clothed bricklayer, Thomas Millwood, whom he had mistaken for the ghost. It was at the Black Lion that the body was taken and an inquest held later. Being built in 1754, it's almost guaranteed to have, you know, at least a few ghosts hanging around the pub, and one of those ghosts happens to be the spirit of Thomas Millwood. The owner of the Black Lion today claims that Thomas's ghost does in fact haunt her business. She said, quote, Previously, the chef that used to live in one of the rooms claimed that the ghost visited him each night. She went on to say that she had even seen the ghost run past her in the hallway once, but it disappeared out of sight. She continued, quote, We often have people coming in because of the ghost, even international tourists. Once there was a group of Polish women visiting because they had a book on ghosts in London that featured the Hammersmith ghost. It's just crazy to me. Like this whole story starts off and they think there's a ghost, but then they believe that it's a human and then they still kind of think it's a ghost. So they kill this person and it ends up accidentally murdering a real human being named Thomas And then it turns out that after all, it was not a ghost and it was a man. And now there is a ghost and it's the guy that was killed. Yeah. Like, it's just so twisty. That's why I felt like this story was so complex. I had never seen a ghost story that had so many levels to it. Like, it's like, he was thought to be a ghost, so he was killed, but he was just a human. And and now he he was a ghost. ghost. Yeah. Yeah. Insane. It's said that every 50 years, the Hammersmith ghost makes an appearance at the St. Paul Churchyard with one account reporting a sighting in July of 1955. As far as the Black Lion goes, there is good news, according to one person who stayed at the inn in 2017. They left a review on TripAdvisor that said, quote, I stayed here in July for a night. I had booked a single room but upgraded to a front-facing double. The pub is very old and quirky and has sloping floors, but is tastefully decorated with old furniture. The bathroom was clean and modern. I ate there in the evening and had a very good vegetarian meal. At about 2.30 a.m., I was woken by some loud banging, and it seemed as if someone was moving about in another room. It was very windy out, but it did seem to be coming from indoors. These noises continued intermittently for about an hour, and then I fell back to sleep. 
In the morning, there was only one place set for breakfast, and it transpired I was the only guest. I was told no staff had been there at that time. I asked if it was the ghost and was told it may have been, but it was a friendly ghost. Well worth a stay. So, strangers, what did we learn today? We learned that old man Graham may have gotten away with it if it hadn't been for those meddling night watchmen. We also learned that it's probably not the best idea to get shit-faced and go ghost hunting with a loaded gun, because A, probably not going to kill a ghost because it's already fucking dead, and B, because, well, you know, murder. But on the flip side of that, if your town believes that a ghost is attacking people and you've already almost had a, quote, punch of the head for wearing white after dark, maybe just throw on the overcoat, man. And lastly, we learned that if you ever stay at the Black Lion Inn, don't be scared, because Thomas Millwood seems like a gentleman, and he may even set the breakfast table for you. Today's horror tip comes to us from the 1999 film Sleepy Hollow. If a headless horseman comes to terrorize your village by cutting off some heads, you might want to check out the beneficiaries of a wealthy man's will, because somebody's trying to make sure nobody else gets that ching chang walla but them. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening to this episode of The Dark Parts. Yes, thank you guys so much for tuning in. This was a fun one. I mean, I, I like the older kind of 1800s kind of stories. I know you do. The Victorian you know. style stuff. Yeah. <laughs> but this was so interesting that, I don't know, I just think it's crazy. I've already said it, but that it wasn't a ghost and then it was. And obviously, there's not a ton of stories that we could find really any at all other than this woman's review, like any really in-depth stories about his ghost. Yeah, if you want to know more, you can just go stay there. You yeah, know what I mean? right? We should, actually. Yeah. But it's just said that he's there and I just think that is a very interesting piece of this story. Well, again, thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. And also, if you would like to help us out and go leave us a nice review if you're digging the dark parts, uh, we would really love that. And also, if you have any suggestions for paranormal, urban legends, myths, scary stories, whatever, uh, send them over to thedarkpartspodcast.com. Oh, I'm sorry. That was wrong. Send it over to our email thedarkpartspodcast at gmail.com. Yes, please do. That helps a lot. I mean, I love these older stories, but I also love newer, more modern ghost stories and just urban legends in general. And most importantly, I'd love to know more about what you guys want to hear. So please send us an email if you have any kind of ideas or story thoughts. And uh, we'll see you next week. All right, guys. We'll see you next time. In the dark parts. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit Amfem.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.